1975, I was 10 years old and living in Augusta, Georgia. I have many good memories of my early childhood in the South. I had many close friends, and my family belonged to a synagogue, Adas Yashirin, which was a Jewish oasis amid a very racist city. Well, my mom, dad, brothers, and I went on a family vacation in the summer of 1975. When we returned home, we found that our house had been vandalized. It wasn't random. Somebody had known that Jews lived there since they had written our names specifically on the wall, along with anti-Semitic slogans and swastikas. After the incident, my family immediately packed up and moved to Michigan. I never even got to say goodbye to my friends. It was one of a few key experiences in my childhood that became so hardwired into my brain that it altered the way I thought about everything. Well, my life since 1975 has been pretty much swastika-free, I'm happy to say, with some exceptions here and there. But like many American Jews, the 2016 presidential campaign was a wake-up call. Suddenly, on social media and elsewhere, I started reading the same kinds of anti-Jewish epithets that were scrawled on the walls of my family home in 1975. I'm Howard Lovey, and you're listening to Emet, Truth, my podcast on Jewish issues. Among other things, I interview Jewish authors for Publishers Weekly. And the reason I brought up my old Georgia story here was this question that many Jews and non-Jews are asking themselves. Why anti-Semitism again, and why now? I recently interviewed Deborah Lipstadt, a professor of modern Jewish history and Holocaust studies at Emory University, who has a new book coming out called Anti-Semitism, Here and Now. My feature on Deborah appeared in the religion section of Publishers Weekly, but she kindly gave me permission to run the entire interview on this podcast. We talk about her new book, Why Antisemitism is Rearing Its Ugly Head Again, and what Jews and non-Jews can do about it. We spoke just before the Women's March this year, so we began our conversation with why she urged Jews to walk away from the march. Let me start off right now with, with a couple of uh, tricky ones because uh, this is all in the news right now. And first, mm-hmm, the, sure. uh, the, the, the Women's March. And, and this is a, a tough one for many progressive Jews, including me. You know, I, right. marched, I marched in my local Women's March two years ago, and, but I feel mm-hmm. like I, I can't this year. And, and you've written that Jews That's should, right. should walk well, away. Well, I have been quite – I don't know if you saw my piece in Hadassah. I did. Came out about the – yeah, and so that and yeah. that's made an incredible, uh, what should we say, impact or or splash or I don't know what the right word is, but it's been it's been uh, tweeted all around and Facebooked all around, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I think it's an easy but painful call. It's painful because deep down we we so many of us so sincerely sincerely believe. Um, in the importance of women's equality, of all equality and recognizing women's equality. Mm-hmm. So, so many of us are deeply touched personally or uh, one step removed, one degree of separation to the Me Too movement and uh, recognize, even when it's not sexual assault or sexual abuse, that women are often uh, 
squeezed to the side in different ways. Right. So this march and the the um, efforts of this march and the goals of this march are something we deeply believe in. Having said that, um, when uh, one of the people you call you, the leadership calls goat, what is the greatest? Uh, what do you call? What did uh, uh, Tamika Mallory call? Oh Farrakhan? right, there, there's there's a uh, there's an acronym. I forgot what it is. But, right, but right, right. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or when it takes you weeks to disavow a statement that um, of 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 uh, again someone you stand by and you honor, who calls your the group my group termites. Um, when it takes you two years to recognize that Jewish women are uh, subject to oppression, it may not look like oppression that people of color face, but there is oppression in a different kind of way. Um, you know, and our goal is not building a new West Side Highway or building a new <laughs> tunnel or something. But the goal is all about uh, prejudice and the goal is all about discrimination, eliminating that. If there were a Jew with whom I agreed on 98% of the issues, um, but who used the N-word, um, I wouldn't march with them. Or um, was a homophobe and an open homophobe, I wouldn't march with them, even mm -hmm. though I believed in the other things they were saying. So I don't understand what the difference is here. I see. That, that's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. It's hard for, for many Jews to, to, to explain, you know, especially progressive Jews who, who believe in, in the otherwise believe in the cause. So I guess, mm -hmm. you know, my, my next question was going to be what, what kind of tips the scale between engagement and abandonment when it comes to anti-Semitism in, in any organization. Mm -hmm. And I think you probably just explained that. Politics makes strange bedfellows. And I can't expect that a political ally, ally and I will be in 100 percent agreement on all issues. Mm -hmm. Um but there's certain ones that, as you say, tip the scale, and this yeah. is one of them. Well, I guess, you know, panning the camera back a, a little bit, you know, Jews are, are, are walking in, in kind of a minefield right now with, with anti-Semitism mm -hmm. in the Women's March and, and uh, anti-BDS uh, legislation having being perceived as Jewish censorship. And it's strange that we're the, the only minority who's not believed or, or attacked more when we say That's these, right. the, That's these right. issues make us specific targets for hate. And when you speak, if you're speaking to a Jewish audience, how, how do we make sense of that? And then how do we explain that outside our, our community, you know, where we, we were sometimes accused of being far too sensitive? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, look, uh, sometimes when I write about the Holocaust, I talk about that people say, oh, why are we always hearing about the Holocaust? And um, I will and but they would never say uh, I would never say, why are we always hearing about slavery? We don't hear enough about slavery and its, its impact on this country and its impact on a major uh, portion of the segment of population of this a segment of the population of this country. Um, the issues are still out there. Now, it's true. There are times every minority can be oversensitive. Your antennae are up. You know, they're exposed. And I have heard, you know, people consider certain things racist that I wouldn't consider racist or I might not think the person meant it in a racist fashion. But by and large, I will, um, I don't know what is, seed to the person of color who's saying that was a racial thing. Believe me, that was a racist thing. I want to say, oh, no, it wasn't. You know, uh, unless they're so off, it's so extreme. Right. But Jews are the only group 
when you come to them, you say that's anti-Semitic. They say, "Oh no, it's not. We'll we'll determine what's anti-Semitic. You're just exactly. in it for the protection of Israel or something like that." You know, if 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 we did that with other groups, people would say that's outrageous. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And it's not to say that every time a minority person says I or a woman or a gay person or whatever it is says I was a subject of prejudice. You know, ipso facto. I mean, you can investigate, you can look, you can ask, but but ultimately, they have a deciding call, and it's only when it comes to Jews that people on, particularly on the left, yeah. um, say. And you see that at the at Corbyn's United, you know, Corbyn's Labour Party in the United right. Kingdom. Right. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You don't know what you're saying. Well, especially yeah. on the left, they like to think of themselves as uh, as, as as more tolerant. That's right. That's right. And so you know, it, it, it's it's hard because there's this kind of. Uh, uh, almost a, f- a funhouse mirror involved in which anti-Semites like to troll American Jews about Israel. They can back up and say, no, I'm not talking about Jews. I'm just talking about Zionists or I'm just talking about Israel. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think there probably are people on the left who legitimately don't know or don't feel like they're being anti-Semitic when they criticize Israel. Right. It, it's a complicated thing. Look, criticism of Israel is not ipso facto anti-Semitism. You want to read criticism of Israel, turn to Haaretz and you'll see criticism of Israel in Haaretz. Um, Criticism of Israel, of any country's policies, is not necessarily that you're against the existence of that country. I don't mean that at all. I, I, I welcome criticism of Israeli policies, especially when they're done in a constructive way. But, but to say that if someone is critical, oh, they're an anti-Semite, is simply wrong. Right. Now, having said that, um, there are points where the criticism of Israel, A, is either a cover for anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. or the excuse is used that um, you're only calling me an anti-Semite because you're interested in protecting Israel or you don't want me to talk about the Palestinians or something. We saw some of that with the Alice Walker incident. Right. Um, when you know which what I'm talking about, you can't. Yeah. If you're in publishing, publishing, you can't not know, I, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. she she came back, you know, after the criticism, and she said, um, "Oh, the only reason I'm being uh, Iki and I, and Iki is a wingnut, a wingnut of a wingnut of a wing. He gives wingnuts <laughs> a bad name, you know. <laughs> um, uh, the only reason we're being criticized is to stifle our voices on behalf of the Palestinians." So, you know, and uh, right. recently a, a, a colleague I know, a person I know who's a professor in African-American studies said the same thing. I said, wait a minute. Have you read what she said? Have you seen what she said? Have you seen the – no, no, no. But that's exactly where they went. That's the default position. That's oh, the, the Jews position, are just right. – com- yes. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not fair and it's not correct and it's not true. Right. And the same thing is happening right now. I mean, this, in the news in the last couple of days with Angela Davis, I don't really know the, the whole story behind that. But for some reason, the mayor of Birmingham is blaming the Jews for Angela Davis not receiving an award. From, from yeah, this, that's, it's such an uh, easy one to blame. You know, yeah. I'm sure there were Jews who were upset, but this this knee jerk blaming of the Jews the Jews. It may have been a Jew. There may have been a Jewish organization which protested. I don't right. doubt that. 
Well, you know, like they say, two, two Jews, three opinions. Well, the, the reason I'm bringing up the, these current events is not to get you to, to necessarily comment on the current events, but how do you answer that? How do you counter it, you know, to say, no, it's not about Alice Walker's position on the Palestinians. It's about a history mm -hmm. of, of, of her anti-Semitic uh, uh, comments going back to whatever, you know. Right. How do you counter it? Without, how do you counter yeah. you, have to do, you have to do your homework. You can't just stand there. You know, righteous indignation is good, but righteous indignation is far better when it comes with facts and with information and being backed up. Um, you want to you wanna get into a conversation about Alice Walker? Read, first of all, look at this icky book, A. B, read what Alice Walker said about it. C, read the poem she wrote about the Talmud. D, read the comments she made uh, after she was criticized for, um, uh, you know, uh, hyping this book or uh, supporting the hyping sense work, supporting this book and, and, and advocating for this book, then come back to me. And, and if someone is going to make the fight and say, you know, uh, it, you're wrong about Alice Walker, they've got to do their homework. You can't just you know, say, as a Jew, I'm, I'm insulted by that, or as right. a Jew, I that, that, that. Do, you've got to do your home. You've right. got to educate yourself. And that, that, in part, is why I wrote the book. Um, I wrote the book because I wanted to help Jews and non-Jews. It's not written only for Jews. I mean, I'd be very disappointed if it's only read by Jews. Mm -hmm. um, but for people to get a handle to understand what this is all about. Right, right. And I loved what you wrote about... Uh... Uh, and it's something I had never thought about. It's it's the ultimate ancient conspiracy theory, which is really what mm -hmm. a lot of uh, ancient anti-Semitism is on the left and the right. It's, uh, it's right. this feeling right. that we're that we're much more powerful beyond our actual numbers, and, and mm -hmm. secret things mm -hmm. happen in secret places and and things like that. Um, you know, you want to hear the yeah. ultimate example of that? As you said, it, it yeah. just popped into my mind. Adolf Hitler, and I don't always go to Holocaust examples, but this mm -hmm. one is too perfect not to give you. Adolf Hitler, after having successfully overseen the murder of one out of every three Jews on the face of the earth, comes the end of the war, he knows he's losing, he's about to commit suicide in the bunker, he dictates his last will and testament. And his last will and testament talks about, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can easily look it up, the great power of the Jews, the nefarious power of the Jews, the need to fight the Jews. He's just killed one out of every three of them. Right. And here's what he's so so it's it's crazy. Instead of saying, "Hey, I did a really good thing. I didn't finish the job, but I did a really good thing," he's 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 bemoaning, and no one has stopped him. No one has made it hard for him to do that. Um, so uh, you know that that is. Um, yeah. There's a conspiracy theory. There's an example right, of right. A conspiracy theory. It's a hard thing, especially on social media, uh, when you just have little character limits uh, to say, right, look, at, right. look at the history of, of Alice Walker or Angela Davis or, or whoever. Um, so has, has social media um, enabled anti-Semitism to come out? Has it increased it? Uh, uh, do they go mm -hmm. hand in hand? I mean, the, the numbers are real. Anti-Semitic incidents in the physical real world have increased dramatically uh, since, very real, since, right. since 2016. Right. But uh, mm -hmm. is, the, is social media partially responsible? Do we have a responsibility? You know, it's easy. Yes, it's easy to hit to blame social media. You know, I think of social media as a knife. A knife in the hands of a killer is a dangerous weapon. A knife in the hands of a surgeon can save a life. 
Social media, I couldn't do my work. I couldn't have written this book and kept it up to date and with all the up-to-date information without social media. Um, having said that, um, yes, you're absolutely right. It used to be if I wanted to get material on Holocaust denial, you know, propon proponents from proponents of Holocaust denial, I'd have to set up a post office box in some, you know, out of the way post office and get it. It would come to me in a plain brown, unmarked, you know, re no return address envelope. Mm -hmm. Now I just have to switch on my computer and, and get it one, two, three. So it allows for the dissemination of some very ugly stuff, A. B, um, your example of, you know, with the tweets and the limits on characters and all that, it, it allows for a lot of glib kind of comments without nuance, without thought. And that's that's certainly um, the case. Um, and again, it calls when you ask when you ask the example of how do you answer um, Alice, the Alice Walker complainers or whatever, um, it calls for people to do their homework. I don't remember exactly what it was, and I wish I had. I wish I had made note of it. But about, oh, I would say a year and a half ago, I was early one morning, I was, you know, sort of trolling through Facebook or Twitter or something. And someone had posted something that was a really horrible example of Republican prejudice, uh, sexism, whatever. It was just, it was just awful. So I was about to share it on my uh, timeline or retweet it uh, again. And I just stopped myself before I was about to hit the button. And I said, let me check this out. And I Googled it. And the only source for it was the source that was posting. Right. You know, so I said, wait a minute, if this Republican official had said this horrible thing, more people would be reporting. And so, again, it goes back. To, it's 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 a it's a connection to what I said earlier. You got to do your homework. You got to educate yourself and you got to be careful and, and read. What what were you and I taught in our undergraduate liberal arts education? What we were taught was to read critically, to think critically, to analyze critically yeah. and 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 there's more of a need for that now than ever before. Yeah, and seek multiple sources. You know, that's what, that's what I learned yes. in journalism school. That's journalism 101. That's right. There you, you go. Know. There you go. Exactly. Um, exactly. So um, why now? You know, we went through uh, this this period of uh, after World War II of relative safety in the, in the UK and the US. And suddenly, you know, uh, dramatically in Charlottesville, it came to everybody's attention, but it's been building for, for a few years. Uh, why why is, is there this increase in anti-Semitism? You know, right I, 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 I compare anti-Semitism to a herpes virus. It's disgusting, <laughs> but, you know, um, it doesn't go away. It's there, you know, and come a moment of stress in society, come a moment of tension into someone's life, it can pop up. You know, you hear often hear the story of the uh, bride who in the morning of her wedding, she's tense, she's nervous. She wakes up and she has a giant cold sore on her lip. You know, <laughs> the worst thing that could happen on the morning of your wedding. Um, well, I, I think of anti-Semitism as a herpes in society, that it keeps um, asserting itself at times of tension, at times of dislocation. Um and 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 that's one of the reasons we're seeing it. it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons we're seeing it. 
you know, mm-hmm. because people, you can't grow up. I once had a colleague of mine who's African-American uh, say to me, we're having a very heartfelt education. And uh, another African-American had said something to the effect of you, a white person can't grow up in Western society without absorbing racism. So mm-hmm. I went to talk to this friend whom I trust and I like, and I said, Diane, is that really true? And she said, think about it, Deborah. And we talked it out. And I, I understood where she was coming from, and I understood what she was saying. And I, I, I had to agree with her that, you know, there is that if you're walking down the street at night and you see a bunch of teenagers, you know, rowdy teenagers, normal rowdy, and there's nothing outrageous, and they're black and they're walking towards you, you get more nervous than if you see a group of white teenagers. That's racism. <laughs> and, and we absorb it. And I mm-hmm. think in the same way, um, much of Western society, and not just Western society, has absorbed anti-Semitism. We call it the oldest hatred, the longest hatred. It's there. It's, so when someone's, if someone were to say to you, oh, the stock market crash, it's because the left-handed people got a hold of the powers of the market and, and manipulated it. You'd say to them, we're taking you to the psychiatrist right now. Mm-hmm. But if they say to you it was a group of Jews and they were doing this to benefit Israel, you say, well, maybe there's something to it, you know, or maybe not all the Jews, but some of the Jews. So it's it's like that herpes. It's there. It's the oldest hatred. It's the longest hatred. It's morphed and it's metastasized, uh, you know, to continue with the medical kind of thing. <laughs> it's it's um, a good metaphor. I like it. Yeah, but it's metastasized, you know, starting out with the way it's talked about the death of Jesus and the way that's talked about in the New Testament, you know, through the church fathers, um, who were mainly fathers, not mothers, using anti-Semitism in a virulent way, you know, jumping ahead to a Voltaire who hated the church but was happy to, you know, use anti-Semitism to attack it. Um, even even Martin Luther, you know, when he's attacking the church, he's he's very he's going from uh, why the Jews have been wrong to virulent oh, yeah. anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, and and then into the modern era with both, uh, you know, Marx, the the God of the Jews is money, and the left picking it up and the right picking it up. It it adapts and it met a Metamorphosize, metastasize, and rears its head, and and that's one of I think that's one of the reasons um, that it's a constant. It, it never um, went away. We, it was part of the cultural background. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But then there's another reason, and and I think we have to look at it very clearly and very honestly, and that is in this day and age, um, there is a, uh, a acceptance of a level of discourse, which is so low um, that you know you got to bend down to reach it, to, to, <laughs> um, and it is facilitated by people like our president, um, hordes and invasion, and they want our blood and they murdering us and and those kind of things. Mm. And um, even when it's not anti-Semitic, it allows for uh, venom and people to say things which. How much, as much as you might think political correctness was overboard, political correctness meant you can't say things that are going to harm people and incite anger and incite um, attacks. But now, but that, that's seen as, you know, liberal hogwash. And um, so there's been that level of discourse, which I don't think our president um, created, but he certainly has. Um, 
given room to, given comfort to. You know, every every right wing, far right wing, um, anti Semite, um, conspiracy theorist thinks the president agrees with them. Now, the president may not agree with them, but if I, if a whole bunch of people thought I was saying something which I clearly wasn't saying. I would think about what I was saying, how I was saying was understood. Right, right. Well, you know, the, this is, I'm writing this for uh, the, for PW's religion section. So there'll be people of all religions, uh, hopefully reading mm -hmm. this. So, you know, for non-Jews, what, what can they specifically do to help counter this or to help understand it or even to help recognize it? Well, I, in the book, I, you know, the book is written to a Jewish student and, an, as you know, and a non-Jewish professor. And, and both characters, as I say in the introduction, the characters are fictitious, but everything they're asking me and everything they're bringing to me is not. Um, it's, it's conversations that I've had, questions I've been asked, emails that I've gotten, um, things I've been privy to. Um, and I think, first of all, non-Jews have to recognize that Though Jews may first appear to them, uh, you know, as being not uh, a minority, not discriminated against, not uh, being persecuted, that there there's a long history of persecution and there's a long history of hatred and hatred that has led to terrible things, including but not only Pittsburgh. Um, and that to recognize that prejudice comes in many forms and the victims of prejudice come in many forms. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is to begin to understand what is anti-Semitism. There's a hashtag, hashtag that's right now making the rounds, my first anti-Semitic experience. Right. Now, this wasn't my first, but um, I remember I had just started teaching. I was at the University of Washington in Seattle. I was their first professor of Jewish history, their first professor of anything to do with Jewish studies. And... Um, it, it it was meshing beautifully right from the outset. I was, you know, my colleagues loved me. I love my colleagues. We worked together well. My classes were were enrolled, beautifully accepted. Jews, non-Jewish students, et cetera, et cetera. So after I was there for about I don't know a year, a colleague and I went out to coffee, and he said to me, you know, Deborah, when we heard that we were getting a that the person who had gotten the job, or when we realized the person who got the job was a New York Jewish woman. We were really worried, but you're terrific. <laughs> now, I was too new and too young and too stupid to say that is pure, unadulterated anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. yeah. I hope this book gives the person who might, might make that statement and the person to whom that kind of statement is made ammunition to call it out. Right, right. And maybe not to call it out in intense anger and say, oh, you're a dolt, you're an idiot, you're a, you're a horrible person, but to explain to the person, to enlighten the person, to, to help them realize what they're doing. And then to give the person who was on the receiving end the strength and the wherewithal with which to do that. Is that one of the reasons why you wrote this as a series of letters, uh, because people want to know what to do uh, rather than to be lectured at? 
I want. I I thought it would be more. I started to write it as a straight narrative, you know, kind of thing, history kind of thing. First of all, it was so boring. Mm. I was falling asleep writing it, much less <laughs> expecting anybody to read it, staying awake. I just was frustrated, and I was about. I was close to thinking I got to give up this project. Um, when a colleague of a friend of mine, um, who's a writer, also called me and said letters. I said, wait. She said, write it as letters. Goodbye. Come to me when you have a manuscript. And suddenly I realized that letters was a, were, was a way of A, taking a topic bit by bit, and B, personalizing it. It's, mm-hmm. Someone has said to me, and I didn't realize it until recently, now, you know, now that the book is around and available, but um, said to me, this is, Deborah, this is an intensely personal book. And it is. And, but I meant it. I guess I meant it that way. Because I wanted to reach people. I wanted people to be able to relate to it. So the answer to your question is yes, that's why I wrote it that way. In fact, in the very lovely review I got in uh, PW, the person it talks about the, the quiet, unassuming, I forget the exact words, but um, you know, non, non-didactic, non-preachy kind of way. And I, right. and I, was very, I tried very hard for that. I didn't want to be speaking from on high, but I wanted to be speaking in a, in a uh, you know, with all due apologies to Ellen DeGeneres, a relatable fashion. You mm-hmm. know? Okay. Well, I wish I could talk to you a lot more, but uh, but this will, will probably be just sort of like a, a seven hundred word story. So. Uh, well, I'm happy for any any attention the book gets. I'm happy that you want to do this, and I hope you enjoyed it, and more importantly, that you learned something from it. I did. So that was that's great. That's great. Thank you, Howard. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Emet, Truth. If you enjoyed this program, please consider telling your friends and colleagues about it and urge them to contribute $5 a month to keep the lights on. Contact me anytime if you have any thoughts or suggestions about the show. I'm at HowardLovey at gmail.com or Twitter at Howard underscore Lovey. And of course, thank you to Emmett's original Magnificent Seven patrons, Naomi Schmall, Michael Harris, Frederick Price, Erica Dreyfus, Warner Ross, Leanne Carter, and Elliot and Kim Lovey. Until next time, don't let anybody tell you we're living in a post-truth era. Let them say what they want, but there will always be Emmett. Truth.